invite you to open your Bible, or if you're using your phone or whatever you got, I want to encourage you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right. The words will be on the screens on either side of me. Acts chapter 9, and if you're visiting with us, uh, we are finishing a series that we've been in through the month, a series that's been entitled, Who's Your One? Uh, encouraging us, hopefully, to, to pursue one person with the good news of Jesus. And so I'm privileged to, uh, to close out this sermon series this morning. And so we're going to be looking at the conversion of Paul, formerly known as Saul, from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. I know y'all just get, got seated, but I want to invite you to stand for just a moment out of reverence for God's word. And I'm going to read all 19 verses. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, and we will read through verse 19. Here's, here's what Luke records for us in the book of Acts. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder <clears throat> against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, that's what we used to be called before we were called Christians, people of the way. It says he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days, and he did not eat or drink. But there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for the man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, to kings and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell off his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Let's, let's keep reading through verse 20. Saul was with the disciple in Damascus for some time. It says, immediately... He began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea that no one is too far gone. No one is too far gone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask in your kindness that you give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. You may be seated. No one is too far gone. His name is Mark Irwin. Mark Irwin was born March 4th, 1944. Still alive today. Mark didn't have what you would consider a healthy upbringing. Mark's mother struggled with alcoholism and mental health issues, and his father was never in the picture. And though they had inherited as a family a great deal of money, very quickly his mother had squandered that away. And they were, if you will, a riches to rags story. And they were just struggling to make ends meet. Before long, Mark would find himself in a little bit of trouble. Mark would be kicked out of high school for failing to attend. He recounts being angry with his family, developing a rebellious streak. And soon, Mark's life would change drastically. Thank you, brother. He had been charged with felony fraud for forging his mother's signature on checks so that he could get money from the family. And so at the age of 16, Mark found himself sitting in a courtroom convicted of a felony with the reality of prison right in front of him. And Mark recounts as he tells his story, he says, I remember sitting in the courtroom begging God for just one more chance, one more chance to do something different. And that chance would come. The judge, believing Mark didn't have to be defined by poor family conditions, poor choices, or even illegal activity, he gave Mark an option. He said either take the prison sentence or serve in court-appointed military service. And so Mark, not wanting to go to jail, reasonable, decided to join the Air Force. And while in the military, Mark began to learn discipline, and he began to, as he says, cultivate a vision for his future. Mark remembers when he was 18 years old, he developed a plan for his life. He had decided that he was going to restore his family's wealth and prestige. All the money that his mother had squandered away, all that they had lost, he was going to restore his family's wealth and prestige. And so with no education, no resources, no prospects, and a criminal record, Mark declared at the age of 18 that he would be a millionaire by the time he turned 40. After his time in the military, Mark began a real estate career. And he actually became the real estate manager for UPS. He soon developed his own company where he began managing commercial properties all over. And by the time Mark turned 38... He had indeed become a millionaire. And he recounts that when he turned 40, he checked his bank account, and he was indeed a multimillionaire. He'd go on to succeed in the banking world. He'd write multiple books. And in 1999, he was appointed by then-President Bill Clinton to serve as an ambassador for the United States of America, where he served in three different countries. And Mark's story is a vivid reminder that a person's past does not necessarily determine their future. Now, what's significant about Mark's story is this. Not only did Mark believe that, That a person's past does not necessarily determine their future. But the people around Mark believed it too. Whether a judge, whether a hiring manager, or even the president of the United States, they believed, at least when it came to Mark, that a person's past does not have to determine their future. That a person is never too far gone. 
And church, if that's true when it comes to people and money, how much more is it true when it comes to God and our souls? That God can take the broken down, the burnt out, the overlooked, the underappreciated, the locked up and change the course of their life. And so what I'm saying is that God can and often will take the most unlikely of candidates and through his grace and his mercy use them to do extraordinary things. You with me? I know you've had a few weeks where you're not used to talking back, but we're going to change it. See, what's significant this morning is not just that we sit here and say amen to a claim that God can change the course of anyone's life, but that we go with boldness believing that the God who changed our lives can change somebody else's too. And we see, what we see in Acts chapter 9, the story of Paul's conversion, is a story that reminds us that no one is too far gone for God to get a hold of them and to change their life. So I'm going to make it plain to you. If God can save Paul, God can save anybody. And if you and I are ever going to grow in our willingness to proclaim the good news of the gospel, we have to believe this, that no person is too far gone. That's what I want to show you this morning as we conclude our series, Who's the One? Before I, before I get into that, let me, just, let me just speak to the series as a whole for a moment. I hope and pray that this series has been an encouragement to you. Listen to me, not just encouragement for your minds and your hearts, but for your hands and your feet. I mean, this idea to do this Who's Your One series, the elders will attest to it. He's not here, so I'll give him a shout out. It was the idea of Pastor Mike. He came up with the idea, and I'll be the first to say, I wasn't, I wasn't so sure at the front end. Maybe it was because I was just a little proud. And I was like, I thought it was my job to plan sermon series. But I'm so glad that he planned this sermon series for us. It has been an encouragement to me and a reminder to me of the beauty and the privilege of declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. It's one thing to come in here and sing that he is good, and he is, amen? It's another thing to take it out there and declare he is good. And so please hear me. We are praying and we are trusting that the pastors of New Breed aren't the only ones who are taking the Who's, Who's Your One series seriously, because know that we are. I have my one. I have my person written down on my card that I'm praying for, that I'm trying to engage in conversations that I might have an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. I pray that we as a church are making a diligent effort to reach someone with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here's what I'm asking you to do. You've been at it for a month. You've had a month to decide who's your one that you're going to pursue over the next year. I am encouraging. So community group leaders, listen up. I'm encouraging you to bring your card with you to community group this week and to share with your group who your one is. Listen, I'm not trying to do it to like make you do it for accountability. It's because we need to be praying for one another and praying for the people that we are trying to engage with the gospel. If you're not in a community group, that's fine. We all got struggles. Tell one of the pastors who your one is and we will join you in praying as you seek to make much of Jesus in the life of somebody who doesn't know him so that's our goal over this next year that perhaps each and every member of Newbury Church will be able to say we reached one and I'm praying that you reach your one today and I said at the beginning so then you can have your two and then your three because we are a people on mission As it says in our mission statement, we exist to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. That's why we're here. But here we go. Let me get into our text. No one is too far gone. I have just two thoughts for you this morning that I want you to focus on as I unpack Acts chapter 9. Some of you are like, great, he only has two points. Well, they're long. But I got two thoughts that I want you to see. Here's the first thought. A person's past doesn't determine their future. 
A person's past doesn't determine their future. So pick up with me again at verse 1. It says, Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So let me give you a little bit of background here. Saul who would soon change his name to Paul. So bear with me. I'm going to try to use his name as Saul because that's what he's called in Acts 9. But I'm so used to calling him Paul. But but this is the Saul that we now know as Paul, the apostle, the guy who God used to write the majority of the New Testament. Right? Like sit on that for a minute. This guy who, who is trying to kill Christians, this is the guy that God uses to write the majority of the New Testament. But his story, as you've picked up on, doesn't start out with him as a likely candidate. Saul was born into a Jewish family, and his Jewish ethnicity was his life. Even later on, as Paul reflects back on his life, he says in Philippians uh, 3, verses 5 and 6, he says of himself, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew, born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, I was persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, I was blameless. This is a man who was a Pharisee among Pharisees, a Jew among Jews. He was zealous about the law. He was zealous about Judaism. So much so that he wanted to remove anyone and anything that opposed in his mind a threat, that posed in his mind a threat to Judaism. Now, side note, I don't have time to press into it, but that's a warning to us about letting the wrong things determine our identity. There was nothing intrinsically wrong with him being a Jew. There is nothing intrinsically wrong with us being white, with us being black, with us being Hispanic, with us being rich, poor, stay-at-home moms, working parents, whatever it might be. The problem comes when those secondary things define our identity because then idolatry comes. And we can be all of those things and love all of those things and submit them under Jesus. But this is who Paul is. He is zealous about his Judaism, so much so that we see in verse 1, he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, we have to understand, for Saul, these are not just idle threats. This isn't some dude on Facebook, a keyboard warrior that's brave behind the screen, but but is a little chicken in real life. He has a track record of murder. I mean, just a few chapters before, in Acts chapter 7, we learn of the first recorded martyr in the Bible of Stephen. And after preaching a sermon, calling the people to repent, we read in Acts 7 verses 54 through 58 that when they heard these things, the things that Stephen was preaching, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul himself, now Paul, would recount this event after his conversion and say in Acts 22 verses 19 and 20, Lord, you know that in the synagogue, that in synagogue after synagogue, I had those, I had those 
who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed him. Saul was authorizing the murder of Christians. Our brothers and sisters, I know that's hard for us to grasp in our concept because in the U.S. we don't really have a concept of religious persecution like this. Now there are brothers and sisters across this world who would understand this, who would, who would get the weight of this, whose lives are in danger every day. But, but these are our brothers and sisters. We'll meet them in glory one day. I mean, it's kind of a side note, but it's while they'll meet the man who killed them in glory one day because God's that good at saving. Right? Saul watched as these people brutally killed and murdered. He authorized the killing of Stephen and others like him, and he cared more about the clothes that people had to take off in order to adequately kill than he did the image bearer whose life was coming to an end. Like, Saul is not a soft man. I'm talking to you, like, like that's gangster right there. Like, you just hold in the coats as you tell people to murder, and they're doing it. But what I'm trying to get you to see is that when he encounters Jesus, everything changes. And don't miss the weight of that statement. When Paul encounters Jesus... Look again, verses 3 through 6. It says, As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Paul encounters Jesus. Here's why this is so significant. And I know this is, this is basic, right? This is the Sunday school stuff, but we're going we gonna to hit it until we get it, all right? Only Jesus can change someone's life. Hey, Paul didn't come to a church potluck. Paul didn't encounter an outreach program. Paul didn't encounter a kind Christian. Paul didn't encounter good political arguments. Paul encounters Jesus. And Jesus changes everything. And what I'm trying to get you to see is that the only way a person can be saved is by meeting Jesus. Yes, you should be kind. You should be gracious. You should be merciful. We're going to have potlucks. Amen. We're going to eat, right? We're going to have outreach events. We're going to do all of these things. But we have to understand that none of those things will save someone. It's only Jesus that can change a life. We've seen this throughout the whole series. The disciples were called because they met Jesus. The paralyzed man was healed and his sins were forgiven because his friends were adamant that he meet Jesus. The woman at the well was used by God to reach a town because she met Jesus. Nobody is going to be saved because you voted for a particular political candidate. No one is going to be saved because you have right theology. No one's going to be saved because you're a nice person. And while all of those things matter and God can use them as a testimony at the end of the day, people need Jesus. Jesus, because I want you to know, church, no presidential candidate was born of a virgin, and no theological doctrine died on a cross, and morality didn't rise from the grave. That was done by Jesus the Christ. And the whole point of this series, the whole point of this Who's Your One emphasis is to remind you that God can take anybody, redeem them, restore them, and use them if they simply meet Jesus. And the question that we have to answer is will we be the people to introduce them to him? 
I got good news for you this morning, church. I got through that faster than I thought, so I get to press in a little bit right here. Let me press in a little bit to Saul's encounter and show you a couple other beautiful things because it is beautiful. Let me give you two insights. I want you to see first that when Saul encounters Jesus, you going to help me, church? He isn't in the process of cleaning himself up. He isn't trying to turn himself around. He hasn't seen the error of his ways. He's still trying to kill Christians. I mean, that's verse 2. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus. Here's the weight of that. He already got them in Jerusalem. Give me another city. Let me go there. I'll round them up, bring them back to Jerusalem and kill them again. Paul is content in his messiness. But Jesus isn't deterred by our messiness. I'll do you one better. He's not only not deterred by our messiness. Jesus does some of his best work in the midst of our messiness. And I know it's true. I know it is because most of you in this room are living testimonies that God will step into our mess, meet us, and work a miracle. You don't have to say amen because I know some of y'all's stories. I'll praise him for you. Some of you didn't meet Jesus in the church. Some of you met Jesus while you were at the club. Some of you met Jesus when you woke up in somebody else's bed the next morning. Some of you met Jesus when you were strung out and hung over. And some of you met Jesus when the consequences finally caught up and you were at your lowest point. But if that's you, you are a profound testimony that God will meet you in your mess and work a miracle. Because when you weren't trying to turn yourself around, when you hadn't seen the error of your ways, when you were in the midst of your messiness, Jesus showed up. And church, I got to tell you, I'm excited this morning because I believe he's still showing up. And so first, when Saul encounters Jesus, he's in a messy spot. But here's the second insight I want you to see. That when Saul encounters Jesus, he's the most unlikely candidate for the future that God has planned for him. You see, through human eyes, track with me, through human eyes, Paul is the most unlikely of candidates to be used by God. I mean, consider what we just said about him, what we know. Paul was a Jew among Jews. What did Paul love? Jewishness. What was Paul protecting? Judaism. What was Paul concerned with? Being a Jew. Paul was ethnocentric. Right? This is a dude who loves one thing and one thing alone, Judaism. And God is calling this man to take the gospel to Gentiles, to the not Jewish people. And we know that God can change a life because you read Galatians 2 and you watch as Paul confronts the ethnocentrism of somebody else who's placing Jewishness above the cross of Christ. Through human eyes, Paul makes no sense. But this is where it gets beautiful. Our God is a God of unlikely candidates. And the Bible will testify to this. Abraham was a pagan, an old man, when God called him to be the father of many nations. Rahab was a prostitute when God used her to protect his people. David was the runt of the litter when God anointed him to be the king of Israel. Peter, Andrew, James, and John were fishermen. Matthew was a tax collector. And here is Saul, an ethnocentric murderer. None of them, through earthly eyes, make any sense. But often it's the, one that we, the ones we deem the most unlikely 
that God sees as prime candidates for him to show off his grace and his mercy. And church, I just need to remind you, we have to remember that the reason we are in this place this morning is not because we were the logical choice for God. It's not that we were so close to grace that it was easy for him to get us there. It's not that we had cleaned ourselves enough that he said, "Mm, I can work with that. Again, you know your story. And I know mine. I'm the least likely candidate to be standing up here doing what I do for a living. But God can do it. And he's still doing it. It's because our God is a God of grace and mercy. Again, what I'm trying to tell you is that a person's past does not determine their future. And Paul had a past. But by God's grace, that past did not determine his future. And Paul has a future not because of anything he has done, but because of the incredible power of a simple encounter with Jesus. We see a glimpse of his future there in verses 15 through 19. Ananias, and we'll get to him in just a minute, he's sent to Paul. And in verse 15, it says, But the Lord said to him, to Ananias, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument, here it is, to take my name to Gentiles, to kings, and Israelites. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hand on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, I just read that. Anyway, jump to the end. Then he got up, was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. But I want, I want to show you real quick just how sovereign our God is over our future. Notice how Saul has a purpose before he has the power to fulfill it. I mean, look at verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. This is what God is calling Saul to do. This is his purpose But this purpose is established before the spirit ever even fills Saul. Because look at verse 17. Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He had a purpose before he had the power to fulfill it. Because here's what I want you to see. We have had a purpose from our creation to walk with God and to glorify him in everything that we say and we do. And sin has tainted that purpose for us. But the purpose still stands. And the purpose is there because God is faithful. And through his sovereignty, he will get us back to that purpose before we even have the power to do it ourselves. He's that good and he's that sovereign. Again, our past doesn't determine our future. The power of God is sufficient to not only save but to send. And remember, just like Paul, we are not only saved from something, we are saved for something. And a person's past does not determine their future. Here's the second thought I have for you this morning, and then I'm in my seat. A person's past doesn't determine your call. A person's past doesn't determine your call. 
Look with me again at verses 10 through 14. It says, Then or there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up, go to the street called Straight. The Lord said to him, To the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to the saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. So while Saul's conversion is the focal point of this story, there's another major player, and it's Ananias. And Ananias, we learn, is a faithful disciple of Jesus who's living in Damascus. And Saul is now in Damascus originally heading there for the purpose of killing Christians. But now he's there blind because of an encounter with Jesus. He's been led there by the men who were traveling with him after his encounter with Jesus. And reminiscent of Samuel, you remember Samuel, don't you? The Lord calls Ananias by name and Ananias says, here I am, Lord. That's the declaration of a servant willing to do what the Lord asks. Here, here I am, Lord. But I doubt Ananias was expecting the response that he got from God. Get up, go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. Now we got to pause here. This was not welcome news for Ananias. Because we learn in the very next verse that Ananias knows all about Saul. He had heard what Saul had done. He knew about Stephen. He knew that this was a man who was dedicated to, to killing people like Ananias. But even more, Ananias says something to me that's even scarier. He says that Saul has the authority to do all of this. Right? In other words, there's nobody that can save Ananias from Saul if Saul decides that Ananias is the next Christian to go. The people have Saul's back. The Jewish religious leaders have his back. The government has his back. This is state-sanctioned and supported violence against Christians. So Ananias does what any sane person would do. You sure about this, God? Like, here I am. I'll go almost anywhere. But Saul? And just for clarity, God says, it's the Saul from Tarsus. It's the one you're thinking of. This ain't the other Saul down the street that you were at the barbecue. This is that Saul. You sure about this, God? And God says, for this man, go for this man is my chosen instrument. Now, understand the weight of this. God at no point in his statement to Ananias, go guarantees that Ananias will leave the encounter with Saul. He does not say, I'll protect you. He doesn't say it'll be easy. God never guarantees a positive result for Ananias. But God says, go. So Ananias is making life choices right now. Y'all know what I mean by life choices, right? Some of y'all made some of those at the gas pump recently. Am I going to eat or I'm going to fill my car up? Like we make, he's making life choices. Will I go believing that whatever God has planned is good and right, even though it might not be easy? Or will I choose disobedience and earthly safety? 
Let me, let me say it another way. Ananias has to make the decision whether or not he will let Saul's past determine his faithfulness. And I just want to tell you, church, faithfulness is not always safe. As we as pastors are trying to send you out, I need you to know that faithfulness is not always safe. You might go to the one that God has laid on your heart and it it might cause chaos for you. It might be a family member that now family relations break down even more. It might be that you are met with hostility or anger or even violence. It is not good. It is not, it is, or it is good, but it is not safe to be faithful. It is good, but it is not safe. And you've heard me say it multiple times. So I'll remind you again, we got to get over this notion that Christianity is safe. Like Jesus literally says, come and die and follow me, right? If this world hates you, remember that it hated me first. Those who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of various kinds. You know, the testing of your faith develops perseverance, right? Like it is not safe to follow Jesus, but it is good. And Ananias has to make a decision. Will I choose safety Or will I choose faithfulness? And praise God for the next six words at the beginning of verse 17. Ananias went and entered the house. Now here's what we see. Ananias' faithfulness models for us the truth that God's call to love our neighbor, listen to me, has never depended on whether or not we think our neighbor will respond in faith. God's call to make disciples of the nations has never depended on how receptive we think the nations will be to the gospel. God's call for us to reach the one that he has placed on our heart has never depended on whether or not the person's past is what we deem to be too messy or not. I'll be the first to say it, full transparency. The person God has laid on my heart all month that I am trying not to be my one is messy. And I have been like, God, are you sure this is the person that you want me to go after this year? And I'm faced with the choice of do I want what's easy and safe or do I want what's faithful? Because here's the truth of the matter, church. We don't know who God is going to save and what he's going to save them out of. As Pastor Lance said so eloquently last week, we have to trust the promises of God more than the propensity of men to believe. That was a gem. We have to trust the promises of God. What promises? That he is still saving. That the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That an encounter with Jesus can change everything. We have to trust the promises of God more than the propensity of men to believe. Let me just say it another way. Maybe Lance was too technical for you. It was good, brother. We got to believe that the next pastor of Newbury Church is slinging dope on the corner right now. We got to believe that the next deacon of Newbury Church could be strung out somewhere right now. We got to believe that the next worship leader could be spouting white supremacy on the internet right now. We have to believe that an encounter with Jesus can genuinely change somebody. For some of us, though, that might be hard to believe. And we just got to acknowledge that because we live in, in, a culture, in a cancel culture society, meaning you don't get a second chance. One slip up, right? But we cannot be cancel culture people. Because if if that's the way that Jesus treated us, none of us would be in this place. Hey, we are a people of second chances because that's what grace is. And we believe that an encounter with Jesus can change everything. And the conversion of Paul shows us 
that God can use the very one who is trying to end Christianity through murder, torture, and violence and use them to be one of the most profound voices of the church for all eternity because we still read in Paul's writings. Because if the story of Paul teaches us anything, it's that no person is too far gone. But if the story of Paul doesn't convince you, I'll end with one more example. It's part of the very gospel message that we proclaim. We believe that God created us and he loves us. He created us to walk in love and fellowship with him. Yet humanity rebelled. Each and every one of us has rebelled, right? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not a one of us measures up in goodness, in righteousness, in action to be in the presence of God. We are by nature children of wrath separated from God. But God loves us so much that he sent Jesus and Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve to die. He was buried and three days later he was raised from the dead. And you might be thinking, Michael, you say that every Every week we know the gospel. What does that have to do with the fact that no one is too far gone? Thank you so much for asking that question because Jesus wasn't the only one crucified that day. And when he walked up the Via Della Rosa, there were two criminals with him. And we read in Luke 23 that when Jesus was crucified, the people mocked him. The guards cast lots for his clothes. And even one of the other criminals began to ridicule Jesus. But the other criminal defended him and said, we are persecuted justly. We are punished justly for our sin. But this is an innocent man. Have you no fear of God? And in Luke 23, 42, he looks at Jesus and he says, please remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus responds with the most beautiful words in the very next verse. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Listen to me. This man never stepped foot in a church. He never went through a new members class. He never took communion. He wasn't discipled. But this one encounter with Jesus took a man with a criminal past and gave him a future hope. And the very gospel we proclaim has a built-in testimony that as long as someone has breath in their lungs, there is hope that God can change their life. No one, hear me, no one is too far gone. And if we believe that, we are saying that sin is greater than grace. And I don't know about you, but the grace that I've seen displayed on the cross is greater than any sin. So here's my challenge, and I'm done. If you are here and you are in Christ this morning, specifically for those of you who are members of Newbury, but to all of you who are in Christ, we, you go back to wherever your church is. Be bold in your proclamation, believing that the same God who saved you can take a beat up, a broken down, an angry, a hostile, and an unlikely person and change their life. And if you are here and you are not a Christian this morning, I'm going to tell you again what I said a moment ago. God loves you so much. And the good news that no one is too far gone means that it doesn't matter what you have done. You don't get it, Pastor, if you only knew my story. I do, if you only knew mine. We have a God who is good at saving. And though your sin separates you from him, he loves you so much that he sent Jesus.
who faithfully fulfilled the law like you and I could not do. He was an innocent man, but he died a criminal's death. And on the cross, God poured out all of his, his hatred and anger of sin, his judgment on Jesus. And he died on that cross. And three days later, he rose from the dead. The Bible says that he was He was crucified for our transgressions and raised for our justification. And because Jesus is alive today, there is a way to be made right with God by placing your faith in Christ, by believing that Jesus is the only way, but his way is more than enough. And by turning, that's what repentance means, just turning from sin. It means changing your mind to believe that God's way really is the better way and that you run and you strive after him. It doesn't mean you'll be perfect. None of us are perfect. We falter and we fail every day, but faith believes that Jesus' death and resurrection was enough. And so if you have never trusted in that message, I implore you, trust in Jesus because he's good at taking a messed up past and giving giving a, a future hope. But church, we are here, new breed, to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. And my prayer, my prayer is that this time next year, we've doubled in size because every one reached one. Let's go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we give you all the praise and all the glory this morning. God, I just thank you that you are still saving I thank you that you are still working, and I thank you for the testimony that as long as somebody has breath in their lungs, there is a chance for you to change their life. And I pray that we would believe that, and that we would go with confidence, knowing that not every encounter we have is going to be a positive encounter, but believing that you are in control nonetheless, and that you will not fail to accomplish what you have set out to accomplish. Again, we give you all the praise and all the glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.